Hello, dear listeners. Can you believe we're on episode 25? The show has over 3,500 listens, and my Health Unchained Twitter account has 108 organic followers as of February 2019. Still, this is a relatively low number, but that just means all of you need to click on that follow button on your Twitter accounts. The Telegram chat has some pretty serious dialogues going on with some key players in the space, so you should definitely check that out at t.me slash healthunchained. Every day I'm getting dozens of LinkedIn connection requests and messages. To me, this just validates the interest in this emerging field. I will continue researching and speaking to the healthcare leaders using blockchain for your educational and entertainment purposes. Remember, anything said in any of my episodes should not be considered financial or investment advice. You should do your own research and speak to your financial investment professional before making any type of investment decisions. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Alex Kahana, who specialized in pain medication and management. Alex has spent the last few years evangelizing blockchain applications in healthcare and is currently an expert on blockchain and healthcare for the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. He served as a combat medical officer in the Israeli Defense Forces and services as a subject matter expert for the Department of Defense and the VA. He's an active contributor to state and federal legislation around reducing opioid-related deaths. This guy has done so much for the community, and you should definitely check out his articles and Medium to learn more about the work that he's done. I truly enjoyed speaking with Alex and think this might be one of the best episodes I've had so far. So enough of this intro talk. Let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to episode 25 of Health Unchained. Today we have Dr. Alex Kahana, or famously also known as the Crypto Health Sherpa, shepherding (laughs) healthcare leaders into the cryptocurrency economy. He's also uh, the strategic or one of the strategic advisors to a venture capital firm called Crypto Oracle. It's a crypto fund. And he's also professor in pain medicine at the University of Washington, or at least he used to be. Uh, You can, you know, update us on that one. Alex, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you, Ray, uh, for having me. And it's always a pleasure to to share my story with uh, the audience and, and, and just uh, talk about uh, healthcare and blockchain. Yeah. So let's talk about healthcare a little bit. So, you know, you've had a background in pain medicine, um, but you've also done a lot. You, you're actually an uh, in the Israeli forces as well. So you had a lot of military experiences. Can you kind of briefly just go through your background and how you got to this point? (laughs) 
Okay, well, I, I don't know, you, you reach to a certain age where brief is kind of relative, but I'll say that on my Medium posts, I, I write, you know, on top of the description that I lived four lives in one, mm-hmm. which means, you know, not only that I'm old, but also I know the dirty little secrets in, in every life. It is true that uh, the first uh, 16 years uh, uh, of my first chapter, I, I spent in uh, the Israeli military. And I say that uh, not so much about the, 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 the fun of being in the military, but more kind of it, it imprints your DNA, you know, mission-driven, data-driven, situation-aware. And I just think that folks who come from special forces kind of truly understand that none of us is as good as all of us. So that when we talk about blockchain, when we talk about distributed trust, or when we talk about community, those things will, will resurface. Um, after after my long uh, career in, 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 in the uh, army, I did a full academic career in medicine. I was, went all the way up ranks, uh, built uh, multiple pain centers across the world, in Israel, in Switzerland. And my last assignment, as you mentioned, was being a professor in chief of the Department of Pain Medicine at the University of Washington, which, by the way, was the first pain clinic in the world back in the 50s by John Bonica was also an army man. So there's kind of, you know, some some historical uh, 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 justice to all that. And uh, I'm saying this because it's just safe to say that I'm familiar with the healthcare business as a patient advocate, as a physician, but also someone who ran, so to speak, an academic business with everything that pertains to research, to reaching out to federal grants, soft money, uh, all, all the things I would say that professors do. Um, my next life, and I was always drawn like this to systems thinking and healthcare design, believing that, you know, discovery is really great, but if it doesn't get to real people to their hands, it's not really helpful. So I, I had this uh, chapter of, of redesigning healthcare through my work in, in opioids and uh, opioid legislation. So I'm familiar with the regulatory uh, legal landscape, uh, uh, work with a lot of state and federal partners. And now my current chapter is in New York, where basically uh, I I started to consult uh, investment firms on the usual stuff of, uh, you know, biopharma, medtech, genomics, AI. And when I hit blockchain mm-hmm. for I got so frustrated that I don't understand what it is that I really spent you know Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours but you know started to, to dive into this and said wow there's really something in there and started to be a voice in the field that's amazing so you know who are what some of your first uh, people that you followed when you got into blockchain because I know for me for example Andreas Antonopoulos was one of the people that I thought had a really good understanding of this whole new ecosystem that was developing and all the coding and things like that who, who are you looking at well i'm always very careful of who i say because then you know then others say well why didn't you mention me so That's kind fair. of play play it safe here but i would say that um the context of where i was exposed to blockchain was uh i was at the time and still am a theme developer at arc investment and management and at the time chris bernitsky was there and he was an analyst uh and so that kind of wow, there's really a there there and Catherine Wood, you know, who's who's uh, really a, a, a visionary in, in, in disruptive technologies and how to invest in those technologies. Um, Lou Kerner, who's the co-founder of Crypto Oracle, from his background as an analyst in Goldman Sachs and 
pointing out to this kind of company called Facebook, you know, back in the 90s and was, you know, coined to be the Oracle, hence, you know, the crypto Oracle and mm. saying, by the way, um, I think almost a year back, mm, something's going wrong with these guys and everybody like blew him off again, the Oracle. So, so I met Lou a little bit over a year now and he heard me and said, wow, never heard a doctor talk like you. Would you like to join our community first VC crypto fund? And I said, sure, why not? And he said, don't, don't you want to know uh, what, what you're going to do? I said, well, we'll figure this one out together. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, of course, they're great. They're great people who write on Medium. Uh, I, I myself am a top crypto health blogger on Medium. So for the audience, please follow me, clap, pretend that you enjoy what I'm writing. But there are some very good writings. I always like to read uh, M M M William Mugayer. I always like to read David Siegel. I like to read Michael Spencer. There are a whole bunch of folks that always say something interesting. Have you actually ever heard of Steemit? It's like a decentralized of course, network. Of course. Have you started writing on there i'm just curious to know if that's something. Not, no 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 I, I i i think uh, the reason is that um there's so much to do there's sure. so much you know between uh um, um helping out companies and startups be it big ones and small ones and the, all the community building that we're we're doing and the research by the way that we're doing through our academic alliance I think that they're just some strategic decisions of where we say, you know, I'm not going to go on Twitter, even I know that it's important and just stick to LinkedIn. Right. So maybe after this conversation, I will go on Steam it. Who knows? But <laughs> but there's a lot out there. Right. Well, if you do, I'll definitely follow and uh, you know, upvote <laughs> your articles there. Uh, you recently moderated the first ever uh, Geneva annual blockchain summit uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. What was the focus of that event and how much discussion happened around healthcare? Yeah, well, well, uh, it was it was a great experience, by the way. Uh, um, I, I actually worked in Geneva for 10 years and built a pain center there, hence my connection. And, uh, uh, you know, speaking well enough French, although the whole the whole uh, conference was in their official language, which is bad English. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh I would say that uh, I was asked to join and moderate that kind of uh, later in the game, almost where healthcare was an afterthought. You know, they mm. planned this way back, where um, they said, "Let's do it a day or two before Davos." This way, people who land in Geneva en route to Davos can stop, be at a full day, day and a half conference, learn things, be in workshops, jumpstart a dialogue, and then head out to to Davos. I came in when they when I had a conference myself that I had at the Innovation Center at the university, purely a full day about crypto health, you know, as a, you know, how can cryptocurrencies be an alternative race to, cap to capital and talk about case uses in, in medicine and in life science. And they said, oh, my God, we have to have you come over, hmm. you know, in January to that to that meeting. So uh, clearly next year. Um, healthcare is going to have a, a more of a, a, a footprint and a foresight. I would say that for me, at least the three things that came out, because a lot of smart things were said, but I think the, 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 the three things is one, we got to stop talking when I say we, the crypto community, we have to stop talking about disintermediation uh, mm -hmm. because there are a lot of people out there doing a lot of things in between. And they're not going to vanish, even though we close our eyes and we want middlemen to leave. They're not. And so maybe a better way of saying it is re-intermediation. 
uh, where hmm. we have to kind of rethink the role of these middle people and how can we through a decentralized economy give them a more valuable role so it's not about killing people and throwing them out but more kind of how do we adapt their work in a digi- in the digital age or the fourth industrial revolution the second thing really was the concept of uh, coeptition in other words not competition right. but collaborative competition and i've been saying this for a while every time when i the first question that i ask a client uh, when they come to see me is you know who's your competition and they usually they give me another blockchain company that are doing so-called the same thing and i say no that's not your those are your friends that's your landscape that's your you know joint venture or strategic strategic alliance your enemy so to speak and that's all just a figure of speech are those who are maintaining a non-sustainable centralized world that allows predatory practices to flourish so the idea of co-optition or collaborative competition was uh, second and the third really is and, and I, I think this could only happen in switzerland or specific in geneva where there's a combination of uh um a financial know-how you know a lot of banks a lot of uh, uh f- private banks uh, 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 a, a lot of very nuanced and sophisticated investors and also in switzerland and i don't know how much you and your audience are familiar with the swiss democracy but the whole idea of a peer to peer and direct democracy which means that they do at least intuitively understand what quadratic voting is and need you know citizenry and apply yourself into politics and you cannot just say i'm not interested and only once in four years maybe not go to elections so i think that the combination really uh, of that is to distinguish between a free market and an open market hmm. and what happens is that right now we have free markets which mean that in those markets there can be producers which is good but we also can have non-producers and counter-producers people who actually in their behavior hurt the market and cryptocurrency is a very good example of how the beginnings of it is hurt because of forces that are either non-productive or counterproductive and so moving from the concept of a free market to actually an open market that it's open to everyone it's open and inclusionary not just to accredited or not just to certain people who have a certain threshold and all this but really it's open to everyone and not open to those who are counter and 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 uh, um, uh, non-producers and so the whole idea of distributed trust and trust valley that that was the theme of, of of the day can you say that one more time about how an open market can deter any kind of counter um parties from or yeah sure well you know at the end of the at the end of the game you know it's it's all about creating uh uh, economic incentives it's all about behavior economics so if you say to everyone listen you can do whatever you want then there will be bad actors sure and an open market you'll still have bad actors though right well again our we have to sit for a second maybe that's a conversation for a separate evening but you know, are we really designing, or is the economy designed yeah. to really encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior? So, so you know, I remember writing in one of my posts 
then as everybody's going off, off to uh, Davos thinking about how to make a good economy, the question maybe is better, uh, uh, how can we make an economy that makes us better people? Right. I get that point. So I think the design is really key to... Um... Yes, design, governance, not government. Governance, mm-hmm. the Swiss have a very good, good light touch on governance in the sense that they they really kind of just want to indicate what is the intellectual framework from which we're working within, mm-hmm. and then afterwards let each canton or each state kind of figure it out. So, so that was the discussion based on distributed trust, saying that it's not that we mistrust, it's not that we don't trust anything, but that the trust is 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 instead of once being kind of you know vertical, where oh there's these kind of white old men who are bald and fat and look like Alex that sit, you know, in a <laughs> behind the scene room and decide for everybody what to do because we're experts, more kind of a horizontal distributed where you include your peers, you know, the landscape, the co-optition and kind of like, like, like in special forces, you yeah. really have to have at some point, everybody's back. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that there are multiple blockchain type um, governance protocols or you know you've heard of like democracy.earth or bit nation that they're trying to form these you know borderless decentralized government systems where you could build smart contracts and create arbitration agreements within the platform and then you could set yeah. rules within the, a certain jurisdiction so i think it's really early but really cool and definitely transformative and i'm super excited for those kind of projects so always following them um so in these workshops what do you find? I guess we kind of went over like what kind of misconceptions that are misunderstandings that healthcare leaders find about blockchain or what deters them away. And you talked about reintermediation as a mm-hmm. solution to disintermediation and coopetition instead of competition and the free versus open markets. Um, anything else to add, though? Well, you know, to that point of what are the misconceptions in healthcare, uh, you know, there are not a lot of misconceptions in healthcare because there's no knowledge of it. You know, it's almost like in 1993, you would ask people about, you know, the Internet kind of uh, questions uh, uh, about uh, encryption and what do you think are better protocols? And they would just look and stare at you at a blank. And, mm-hmm. You know, look, I think that. Uh, I, I usually say this kind of, um, you know how, how there's the Gartner uh, graph where they talk about this hype and then the solution and blah, blah. I, you know, I, I think more like a doctor. Hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with the five steps of grief by Kubler-Ross. So Kubler-Ross, she was like a Swiss psychiatrist back in the 60s. And she described five steps of grief when something changes or you lose someone. And so in healthcare, it's kind of like where everybody, if you wish, are going through these steps of grief because the world right. is, is, is a changing. I think the so first, the first one, one is denial, if you right? think that blockchain yeah. is not a thing, yeah. then you're stage one, you're in denial. Yeah. So a lot of folks in healthcare, just they don't think it's a thing. Then stage two would be you no know, anger. Oh, you know, all these ICOs, oh, look at all the scams, the hacking. That's fine. That's stage two. And then when you start to say, no, but not ICOs, should be STOs or DAOs or DAX and DATs and cones, and I don't know, that, that's stage three bargaining. Hmm. And then everybody becomes, you know, stage four, horribly depressed. 
and say, oh my God, this is never going to work. It's too hard. It's this, the regulation, I don't know, and this, which is good because stage five is accepted. So I don't think there's a lot of misconceptions. I think there are about a lot of non-conceptions because really healthcare in that sense is a centralized system that has raised a whole generation of stakeholders, uh, be it patients, uh, providers, hospitals, regulators, industry, that really don't know mm-hmm. any other model. And right. so they don't have any opinion on, on this whole blockchain. Absolutely. And, you know, if you think about the different technologies that's impacted healthcare in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, EHRs being one of the more prominent ones, what state of grief are we in for EHRs? Are we in the depressive phase? Because I see a lot of articles where doctors are saying that, you know, it's taking them away from speaking to their patients directly and they're facing a computer. I don't think we're at the uh, final stage yet. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that um, you know the whole EHR thing started from the High Tech Act during Obamacare, and the the idea behind it was that we need to manage our data in right. a better way. That, and that makes know, sense. The whole idea of writing stuff on napkins and paper and faxes is just not appropriate for the digital age. So it didn't come out from a bad. Uh, I would say stance, you know, let's make life more miserable for doctors or for patients or whatnot. But I think that that's a very good story in history to tell about the unintended consequences of when a centralized system tries to create centralized planning and define a marketplace. Uh, You never know what perversities and what perverse intentions or results it's going to create. And I'm saying this because now we live in a time, and maybe I'm digressing a little bit, and I'll go to EHRs in a second, but we live now in a time where people feel so fearful for their healthcare coverage and how to pay for it, that we're starting to hear this idea of, oh, we need a single payer, we need someone to take care of us. And I understand where that comes, you know, if you're like, if it's the number one reason for personal bankruptcy, you know, everybody's walking around scared that they're going to fall, hit, you know, break a leg, and then they're going to go bankrupt yeah. uh, because they read about, you know, $18,000 emergency room for a cast or something. Uh, um, so there's this kind of we got to do single payer. And so we go into this central planning idea. And, you know, I just think that it's not a, a, a resilient solution for the digital age. Central uh, 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 institutions are attack vulnerable, are collusion vulnerable, are censorship vulnerable. So I'm not saying that we're not supposed to fix healthcare. You know, everybody understands it. But I think that the direction that we're taking to centralization, mm-hmm. instead of going peer to peer, it's a wrong term. And so going back to electronic health records, it's that. It wasn't peer-to-peer. It was designed by central planning, by very smart people that looked at it from a process perspective, from a data perspective, but not from a patient's perspective. And and then what happened was that it created tons of information that not too much of it allowed active insights either for patients or providers to be health producers, if you wish. Mm -hmm. And so now we're just in the processes that for every minute that I see someone, I have to spend three minutes filling it in. 
And so I think that, uh, you know, my professor in philosophy always told me, don't do things differently, just view them differently. So I think that we need kind of to view it differently. And where value-based care or the digitization of healthcare, I think what they're missing is that they're talking about patient-centric approach when actually it should be a patient-driven approach. It's not I'm doing stuff for you to make it more convenient, you know, let's do an optimization technology, you know, AI that will give us better insights and better ideas and all this. No, no, this is not an optimization challenge. This is really about changing how we do things. And and in essence, the problem in healthcare is that we're health consumers instead of being health producers. And what blockchain gives for the first time is also that you can become a wealth producer also. And so that's that's kind of my take on, on self-sovereign electronic health records and why by you owning the information, you can actually do good not only medically or health-wise or wellness-wise, but also financially. And not, you know, 23andMe taking all your information and making 300 million bucks on sending it to some pharma company and you're not included in that economy, that's the open economy that we're talking about. Right. Our, uh, I've seen different estimates, but our healthcare records, each one of us, um, each record can cost between like 100 or $300 up to $1,000, depending on how much information you have in there. And that's just now. If you think about in the next three to five years when technology, wearables, you know, sensors with, you know, under your skin that's always collecting data, that's going to produce a lot of new information that's going to really help spur research and development into new potentially new drugs potentially new just general treatments that don't have to deal with pharmaceuticals at all but you know it's lots of you know you know i'm 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 an advisor i sit in the pain commission for the nflpa so the nfl players association to try to think about you know football is the only sport that has a hundred percent injury rate you know so it's, (laughs) it's 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 a rough sport right and so think about... Did you uh, watch the game? Are you happy with the results? Oh, man. <laughs> the Pats won, did it? That's really a separate talk. And we have <laughs> All right, let's go back. We can do this offline. But, 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 but the point that I'm bringing this up uh, is when we talk about value, could you imagine the value of collecting both the behavioral and sensorial data of whoever is on that field in the research of creating uber performance and resilience. Yeah. Not... So we're talking here not about thousands, but hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I just am saying this as an example of something that is not obvious. Because to say, okay, you know, there are five people in the world that have this genetic, I don't know what, and we can find out and find a $1 million pill to help five people, that's everybody's thinking about. But when we think about understanding uh, behavior, then that becomes interesting because what actually the illness burden is around the world. It's chronic lifestyle, Mm -hmm. behavior modifiable diseases. That's really what this is all about. And so the most important thing to know about your state of health, by the way, is your zip code. Yeah, that's the strongest social. So, so, so all what I'm saying is that in this plethora of 163 exabytes of data that we're creating, that is now siloed, tranched, buried, and unusable, Mm -hmm. 
uh, uh, we need to create an economy that that liquidates this. You know, it's not that we lack data; we don't have the juice, we don't have enough cash, if you wish, to move these digital assets. Well, I feel like the infrastructure is hasn't been built yet, and that's what's happening now. So we have these central organizations, EHR companies, Cerner, Epic, whatnot, the the big ones. Um, you know, they're doing, they're working to develop these user interfaces so you can input data and collect it you know they're doing the best that they can but it's not an open market like you're saying it's not um distributed or decentralized it's within their own system and they have control over it it's not yeah. open source and and, and 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 that's really honestly what we have to change and so there will be laggards that will fight with a tooth and nail and then there'll be ones that are open. Look at the AI field. You know, basically there are what seven or eight companies that do AI. That's it. Well, there's now, a lot. Of, there's a lot of companies that do AI. Yeah, but there are only seven or eight that are huge. Oh, okay. That generate all that data. So all these companies, these hundreds of little companies that are starting, you know, they're just starting. They can't compete with Alibaba, Tencent, IBM. So so what they're doing is they're hoping that they're going to come up with something and be bought. But that black box, mm -hmm. that black box AI, that's what increases bias and deep fakes. That's what causes, you know, uh, 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 all, all these, uh, uh, when we read that Watson, you know, uh, misguided physicians in the tree. If we want to improve the intelligence of our machines to actually help us, it has to be a diverse uh, community based on distributed trust. It's just simply by design cannot be just uh, a company that is doing anything from a, everything from A to Z. One thing to kind of jump back a little bit, you mentioned behavioral health and that being an important aspect of our overall health. I saw a quote you mentioned probably numerous times, but you said that the opposite of health is isolation. How does blockchain solve that problem? And yeah. maybe define the statement a little bit. Well, well, yeah. Well, first I want to explain that. You know, that was in the context of I, I was giving a... Um, a congressional testimony and one of the senators asked me something like, what's the problem of healthcare? And, you know, and you kind of like, okay, what soundbite can I give them? Oh, you know, healthcare is the week. It doesn't work because we don't care about health or something like that, you know, but then, you know, when I think about it, this is something that I've witnessed tens of thousands of times for over 25 years of treating patients with pain is what is the common denominator of all these, all these patients that came to me? You know, what would they say to me? You know, they would say to me, doctor, believe me, because what I'm saying is true. Because, you know, they just know that everybody kind of blows them off and say, yeah, yeah, I know it's tough, but it's not, it's not real. And they would say to me, you know, don't, don't, don't think that I was always like this. You know, three months ago, I was like you. And the pain stripped away my agency, my dignity, and I had to resort to drugs that, you know, make me... Uh, uh, dependent both physically and psychologically on them. And, and, and the third is this sense that nobody really understands them, that sense of isolation. So what really happens is as you get sick, your world starts to contract mm -hmm. and you lose your connections. You know, right. you have friends at work. How much can you hear about their pain and their grief? How are you doing? You're not really asking to know how they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you want to hear fine and move on with your day. So, so, so your network starts to contract from work, friends, 
family, and then someday, one day you just wake up and you're all on your own. And it might even not be true. You just feel alone. Right. And then you decide to take an Oxycontin, a Benzo, uh, you know, a Chardonnay if you're a woman, a single malt if you're a guy, and you overdose. And that happens every seven minutes. So, you know, until now, we already have about seven people who died in the U.S. So, so if we think for a second that the opposite of health is not disease, and what we have is a disease management system, but the opposite of health is isolation, then the journey back to wellness is through connectivity, through connectedness. And it can be connectedness through your data, right? through your Fitbit, through your phone, through all the, and it can be through family, friends, faith. I used to say Facebook because it starts with an F. Now I'm choosing something else. But the point is you're part of a community. And suddenly you start to, it sounds, starts to sound like, like blockchain. Right. And I think and, that, and, and just to finish that, you know, what I say to my 12 year old is, uh, uh, um, if we take the I out of illness, and we put we, what do we get? So this yeah. is in a nutshell, the whole isolation theory. We get wellness, everybody. That's, yeah, I think I totally agree with you on that. And uh, one question I have is, you know, we do have this opioid crisis here in the United States as well as other many other countries around the world. I'm just curious to know your opinion about cannabis and whether or not that could be a, par- <laughs> a partial solution to these people with pain problems. I already want to get me into trouble. Okay. <laughs> you don't have no, to answer it. It's yeah, a question. no, no. I think it's a great question, and I think that it should be addressed, and I'm sure that the audience right now is thinking about that. Sure. So so I'll answer uh, as, as a doctor, okay? And then I'll answer as a systems thinker or an economist or macroeconomist, and then I'll answer as a father. Okay. Okay. And very briefly, you know, because this again could be a whole sure. topic we can talk about. You right. Know. And the reason I uh, ask is because there are lots of um, cannabis-driven uh, cryptocurrencies and tokens that are related to treating patients and trying to get them medicine that they need. So that's why I'm asking. So, so, so yeah, no, absolutely. So, so as a doctor, you know, I I've seen patients, and there is a body of evidence that shows that there are either strong mediocre or weak indications to be treated by cannabis or by the active ingredients that are in various species of cannabis. And I would also say that there are other things that we treat ourselves that have no medical indication, but we still do it anyway. So I'm not this kind of rigor scientist that says if you don't have a level A, you know, proven in double blind studies. No, this is something that should be in the toolbox. But in order to answer when, you have to understand what it does. Mm. And in general, without kind of going too much into the neurobiology of it, it, it attaches to areas in the brain that pertain to the retention of aversion, aversive experiences. In other words, we make our brain unable to retain aversive experiences, hmm. which is, you know, if you have end-stage cancer, and you weigh 60 pounds, and you look at yourself in the mirror, it's not bad to have something that doesn't allow your your brain to retain how awful your situation is. Hmm. And uh, if it increases also your appetite, it's good. It's good. Hmm. 
I'm not sure that the same goes to treat uh, uh, um, other situations uh, because uh, um, uh, ret- aversive experiences is also a way of learning. Right. And so when you take that away, you just make learning a little bit more challenging. So, you know, in French, the word for cannabis goes in the category of stupefiant. You know, it's a stupefier. It makes you stupider. Hmm. So I'm not saying, you know, that, oh, stupid. Not at all. What I'm saying is that if, if this substance is a way for you not to retain uh, aversive memories... Maybe a way to look at it is, well, let's examine what are the aversive memories that are causing anxiety or stress and move them out, hmm. you know, and, and kind of that's where the naturopathic movement is that instead of treating a disease or a condition, they say the body is this wonderful organism that knows how to take care of itself. And so maybe just let's like make us, let, let's let's remove the obstacles that disallow it hmm. to be to be uh, unhealthy. So maybe like drink water that doesn't have lead in it, or breathe air that's clean, or eat proteins that are plant based. That that's what I'm saying. So I'm I'm that that's my medical. You know, it's a stupefier. There's good indications to use it. Whether you use it for that or not, that's a personal decision. Now the economic, and I'm wearing you know my economic hat is I just want to say to be clear to the audience that the reason why states have decided to embrace or legalize the use of cannabis is purely economic. Yeah, a lot it's of tax nothing income. nothing to do with the medical indications, the scientific veracity or rigor. It's simply the federal government is not supporting the states in infrastructure, education, social work, and health. We need to fill out the, 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 this void. And so taxing this... Is a good way. So economically, does it make sense? Yeah, I guess. Economically, does it make, you know, as an engine to develop? Yeah, yeah, yes. There's an industry of alcohol. There's an industry of smoking. There's an industry of a whole bunch of things. So, So I think that among all the things that we consume that uh, have nefarious effects to the planet or to people, cannabis is not like on the top of my list. I would think more like plastic bags hmm. are, are, are more up there or, you know, styrofoam is sure. up there. So, so, so that's, that's the economist. And as a father, you know, I would just ask my daughter if she would decide to become a, 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 a regular cannabis user to say why, kind of to understand the why. And that's, I think, the real reason that we have to answer ourselves honestly and truthfully saying it's fun or it makes me feel good. That's a cop-out answer. That's not a real answer. And so we live in a life of excesses of everything, excess work, excess information, excess sex, excess consumption. The whole movement of where we're going in now is reducing our carbon footprint is understanding that we just do too much of everything. Hmm. And so I, I just would, as a father, ask her, what is it that you need? What is shining so bright in your eyes that you need sunglasses to temper <laughs> that bright light? Thank you. That was a very uh, responsible answer and very um, you know, comprehensive. So thank you for that. 
Um, we can get back to blockchain now. Appreciate sure, that. Sure. <laughs> I felt like I had you on. I couldn't go without asking. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. According to a 150-page report by Global Market Insights, global blockchain technology in the healthcare market is set to surpass $1.6 billion by 2025. It says that the growing applications of the Internet of Things in healthcare will actually result in huge demand and increased adoption rate. It says that a lack of a skilled workforce will be one impeding factor for blockchain in healthcare growth. This will be a skill that's definitely in demand, so get educated. Check out the show notes for links to this report and a link to the Blockchain Healthcare Udemy course with a special Health Unchained discount coupon. Also, in my opinion, $1.6 billion by 2025 seems pretty low and probably doesn't factor in all the cost savings and improved data ownership models that will give value back to healthcare producers. Another positive sign that blockchain and healthcare is getting some serious attention is the fact that at HIMSS Global Conference, which took place February 11th through the 15th, 2019, in Orlando, Florida, there were 35 blockchain-related sessions, compared to only one last year. HIMSS stands for the Healthcare Information and Management System Society, which represents over 70,000 individual members and 630 corporate members, and 450 nonprofit organizations. All the major health IT industry companies were in attendance. And now back to the show with Dr. Alex Kahana. So what do you think about the current state of adoption overall in cryptocurrency world right now? So 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 that is a great a great question because um in that day in Geneva, mm-hmm. you know, Geneva is still kind and polite and everybody, you know, with, with suits and self-congratulatory and how wonderful and 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 one of the guys who came up is a brilliant speaker i know him from before tubi saliba tufi saliba who's the ceo of toda protocol and they just it's an awesome protocol that's ambitious what's it called want, t-o-d-a toda okay toda. which in hebrew means thank you huh. the guy's not israeli but you know he has some connection to the holy land and sure. toda network you know they're, they're ambitious they want to replace the tcp ip protocol they're like the problem or the challenge, the historical challenge of the internet was that it was designed to move data and to move information, but it wasn't designed to move money. Right. And that's why we developed all these SWIFT and IBAN and LIBOR and IOTNOT and centralized banking and all the middlemen in the finance and trading. So maybe what we need to change is the original sin, you know, is just hmm. let's just do that protocol and start over huh? you know all over again and it's so, so and he said this because i'm not trying to plug in you know Tufi and his stuff everybody can look at that and i have nothing to disclose but he said and he was the only one there that stood up and said i'm glad you're enjoying the day i'm glad we're all having a good time the only thing is that the adoption of blockchain is 0.2 percent so for those who are not strong in math, what that means is that 99.8% of people are not applying blockchain. And and so, uh, uh, um, and he said, and you know why? And he said, because it's not sexy enough. 
And everybody's like, sexy? What is that? S-E-C-S-I. So it's not secure enough. Hmm. The execution is not this. The compatibility is not that. The sustainability is not that. And the interoperability is not there. So until we don't make it sexy, people are not going to adopt it. So I think that he was really the only one who had the cojones to say, this is great, guys. This is really, really good. But we have some serious work to do in terms of all these elements that we talk about all the time in our literature. I'm not saying anything Right. Uh, that no, their audience doesn't know. But then again, having said that, it still doesn't justify that 99.8% of people don't use it. It just means that we have to do this community building, your podcast, what I'm writing, going out, explaining to people why, the why, not the how. That's, that's the problem. Problem, you know, when you say blockchain is a distributed ledger, you didn't explain it. Right. You what is a distributed it. ledger? Right. It's, it's like if you don't have a concept what 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 a ledger is or what an append-only database is, you don't understand what that means. Mm-hmm. It's like saying what is water and the water is H2O. So if I don't know what H is and what O is, I could say water is also W-A-T-E-R. So you have to explain the intention behind it. What is mm-hmm. the intention behind it? And so the intention, like the internet, is to create this peer-to-peer connection of knowledge, of data, of value, of money. But what makes it special by the virtue of its security or encryption or immutability or transparency or whatever word you want to use, you can do it without a third trusted intermediary. That's pretty much it. And so I think that if we do that, instead of talking about the how, we talk about the why, then more and more people will adopt it and say, hmm, that's it. And it won't be a zero, measly 0.2, but would be 2% and then 12% and then eventually 102%. Again, I totally agree. Um, I'm surprised it's that low. I guess he's talking about in general how many people own or uh, have traded cryptocurrencies. In, in yeah, I, I think it's a, it's an amalgam. You know, obviously sure. he wanted to be provocative. And most people who've like might have tokens, they don't actually use them right now. Maybe they're just holding on to something. So uh, it's not an unreasonable number. I, I think these. the point that he wanted to say was that it's very low. Yeah. And he wanted to use the word sexy. Yeah. And, and he that, just he wanted to like say, yeah, and he just presenter. wanted to say, stop being so smug about this. Mm-hmm. You know, let's hunker down. And that goes back to the idea of re-intermediation. Yeah. That if we walk around like these, you know, radical social justice warriors that want to burn everything, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to get a buy-in. We have to convince governments, public institutions, large corporate, uh, you know, organizations of the utility of what this technology brings. And it's okay to say that it will also optimize operations. It's like a general purpose technology that will make things faster, better, cheaper. Mm-hmm. But it's also something else. And that's what we need to explain. Yeah, I think one of the biggest barriers is actually government. And because the fact is they could potentially lose a lot of their existing power. Uh, if you remove the financial power that governments have, all they have left is military power, which you know we don't really want them to use. And if that's their only like lever or lever in the society they will use it i think to maintain power and that's my fear really is um the military yeah you know 
I, I, I don't disagree with you that there are a lot of bad actors and, you know, a lot of illiberal democracies that have joined the uh, group of uh, 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 dictatorships. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, we're all worried that we're also going in a, in a path that is, you know, attack and collusion and censorship vulnerable. Um, but... You know, and maybe I'm naive. Maybe again, it comes back from my day in the military where I just saw these things of ultimate sacrifice and heroism. I really believe in in in, in the nature of and, and the resilience of human beings, and and I think that um, if you look if you look historically, if we're talking about governments right now, so what 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 is going on actually? Is if we go, let's say, post World War II, okay. Uh, it was it was really central planning, you know. I'm I'm old enough to remember that uh, as a child, not only did I not speak unless spoken to, I didn't have any any pretensions or any expectations that any adult or anyone that's older one week older than me would actually want to hear what I have to say. Hmm. We're not we're not here anymore. Okay, when we sit around the table, my 13, 12, 13 year old now, she's going to be 30. She's the one who runs the conversation. So we're not there anymore. Okay, so we moved from this kind of benevolent dictatorship, you know, where my father would say, instead of how do you feel, he would smack me on the back of my head and say, how did that feel? You know, so, so, so we moved that and saying, you know, it's not okay. You can't tell people what to do. So we created this kind of human centric, student centric, citizen centric. Uh, environment and that is part of kind of the representative democracy of saying you know I can't be a specialist in everything so I'll just elect people that will represent me I'll elect doctors and politicians and and people of faith and and they they will be the go-to people but what happened in 2008 is we just found out that they just lied to us yeah. All these people that were our, our, our representatives, they, they just took care of themselves. And so now we're waking up into this realization that, you know, it has to be holocratic. Right. It has to be, when I say holacracy, I mean it's self-assemblage. It, 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 it's, it's, it's like we did in the military. You know, I didn't, I didn't answer to a job description. I woke up one morning, I had an itch, and I started doing it stuff. Same thing with you. You didn't wake up and answer and answer this is bugging me i'm gonna sell you start asking your friends do you want to help yes no yes no yes no and so when i walk into my daughter's room and she's on minecraft totally bummed that they did some software (laughs) update that that uh ruined everything she worked in the last three weeks and i say honey how can i help you and she's like looking at me and saying like what can you do there's no expectation that a parent or a government can fix this for me and I'm like, I don't know, maybe we can go to the website. Do they have a manual, SOP, standard operating procedures, FAQs? And she's like, what are the words that are coming out of your mouth? What the hell's an FAQ? What's a That's frequently a asked example. question? And so, and so I ask her, how do you solve stuff? And she says, duh, I do it on my own. I call my friends up. I go on Reddit, subreddit. So, so I think that as much as I agree that we should be fearful of, of, of centralization and centraliz- power centralization because it does corrupt. I am actually way more optimistic when I look at the Gen Zers and say that everybody knows that this is not sustainable. And maybe quadratic voting 
where we're basically mm. saying, yeah, you know what? One person, one vote, not good for democracy. Mm. What's good for a democracy is where people actually who pay attention and do stuff get a vote that's proportional to the effort that they put in. And that maybe if we make it liquid, we can swap these assets because not everybody's interested the same way in the same thing. So so that's what's going to dismantle the centralization. Yeah, I think that would be a very interesting world to live in. And I'm really looking forward to it. I don't think it'll be very soon again, but um, looking forward to it. And that's why you're right. I you know this podcast I've created on my own because I wanted to share the stories that you and many other guests are, you know, the project that they're working on. They're, I, to me, they're important. They might not all be successful, but at least the story is out there. And um, everyone receives information and language in a different way. So the more people that listen and the more guests that I have, I feel like I'm contributing to the community. So You are, you are. Appreciate that. Um, so let's get back to healthcare a little bit now. Sure. <laughs> How can various stakeholders benefit uh, from a blockchain ecosystem? So rather the question should be, which stakeholder will benefit the most? Is it patients, providers? Who will benefit first, rather? I'll try and give you an awesome answer. So okay. I'll, I'll say it like this, that's, right? That's the least I can expect from you. <laughs> so, so, so instead of giving you a litany of, of, of kind of like a, a, a grocery list of what this, you know, what I'll, what I'll say is like this. I, I do a workshop where I bring people who are interested in healthcare and I divide them into groups. So I don't know, like 30 people divided into five groups of six. And I say to one group, you're the patients, to another group, you're the doctors and hospitals, to another group, you're government, you're payers, you're industry, okay? And I say to them, uh, uh, the only rule is that when whatever group you are, you have to pretend that you're in that group. So you like, you can't be, a CEO of pharma and not talk like one, even though you might hate them. Okay, that's the, that's the only rule. You have to represent the group. And some ask, can I please move? You know, yeah. I don't want to be a CEO of this, or I don't want to be a politician, or I don't want to be a patient, or I don't want to be a doctor. Okay. And then I ask each group three questions. I ask them, what's wrong with healthcare? I ask them how to fix healthcare. And I ask them, what is value? And then... What comes out of it is the answer to your question. Hmm. And so what comes out of it is three things. One is that 95% of the problems everybody has. Hmm. Everybody are talking about uh, too much information, too much stupid information, too much dormant information, inefficiencies, friction, regulation, redundancy, waste, duplicity. Everybody talks about the same thing. And maybe the 5% difference are some unique things that pertain to each group. And I don't know. Right. So that's the first one. The second question is so how to fix it. And that's an eye-opener because they have a list, a long list of how to fix it. But what happens is that you hear everybody explaining what the other person has to fix, that everybody explains what the other person needs to fix. You know, that what patients, what doctors need to do, doctors, what insurers, insurers, what hospital, you know, everybody explains to everyone what they need to do. And nobody says, this is what I need to do in order to make the system better. And so as long as we're in this blame game, we're stunted. We can't really come to a distributed trust kind of answer 
if I think that this conversation is terrible because of you, it's what can I do to make this, you know, podcast better? Hmm. And then the third, and it's an eye opener. People's like, wow, you know, maybe I should ask that question more often. And, and, and the third, and this is where it's the most substantive and most interesting, is it changes the equation of value. Because what did we learn? What is value? We say value is Q divided by C, right? Quality divided by cost. And the problem with that equation is twofold. One is that quality means different things for different people. Right. You know, I want a $1 million pill. That's good quality. But if I'm head of, uh, I don't know, state Medicare, that's awful because then I can't take care of all the other beneficiaries in my constituency. Hmm. So quality means different things. And so in the lack of what quality is, we go to process. So quality means that you fill this form. Quality means that you're a good, that's not really quality. But the second thing, which I think is even more nefarious is that the cost is in the denominator. What that means is that most of our strategies are cost reduction. That's what so that let's do more with less. And we do so much less to the point that it reduces value and costs more. So let's not do prevention. Let's not do vaccination. Let's not do stuff. And then afterwards, we're stuck with, you know, a lot of sick people. It's like the story of the farmer who had a mule that died. And he said, I'm so surprised because last week I taught him how to work without food and water. <laughs> you know, it's like. So, 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 so what blockchain does, what a distributed economy does, because it's not the technology itself, it's the mindset. What it does is it changes the equation between what you're willing to give divided by what you want to get. So the fact that you want to get a lot, that has little value. It's in the denominator. It's a huge number. I want to get everything for free. I want to get reassurances. I want a single payer. I want, I want, I want. Sure, what's the value? Not high. Question is, what are you willing to give? So if you're a patient that is not willing to give up a smoking or not willing to change a sedentary lifestyle, the value proposition is very low. If you are in the industry and you're not willing to give up profit and put it after your product and people and not before it, value proposition is low. If you're a government that want everybody healthy, but you're not willing to create a safety net or some infrastructure that will allow you, that people will develop health and digital health literacy. It's, it, it's So the point here is that what blockchain has to give to the different stakeholders is not stuff. Oh, I'm going to get something on a supply chain. Oh, I'm going to get something. It's not an optimization technology. Yeah, there will be stuff that will make it better. And whether it should be on a distributed ledger or not, that's a secondary question. But what it really gives is that because of this interdependence, it forces you to think, first of all, what can I do to make this work? I also think that when you say, what am I willing to give? I think that in the future or even right now, people are, creating wealth out of their own data. So if they're willing to share all of their personal data and health data, they could be rewarded with maybe a reduction in their healthcare premium, for example. So they'll get more out of it. Um, But right now what's happening is the companies, the centralized companies are actually taking your data, but they're not giving you anything back. So there's no transparency in that transaction and it's all one way. And that's a conversation that we're not having. 
Who's we're not having? having a conversation. Who's we? Is that me and you, or you mean like the industry? We, we in the blockchain community. Because what we are talking about, and definitely in the non-crypto community, what we're talking about is security. Hmm. What we're talking about is privacy or privacy. But what we're not talking about is ownership. What we're not talking about enough is agency that is rooted in human dignity. And so where it starts to become interesting is not only, yeah, I can create a utility token that will give me access to a platform that I can afterwards trade and get all kinds of goodies and stuff and all that. That's fine. But honestly, that's that that's peanuts. The real thing is through security tokens to get fractional ownership of the platform that you're using. So when I have my Fitbit and it's streaming in information and I am not using drugs, which saves twenty five thousand dollars a year to my insurer, I want 12K. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want I don't want some, you know, transparent Lululemon yoga pants or some fifty dollar voucher to go and buy some brownies in you somewhere. That's, that's total nonsense. I want to create real wealth because I am doing something that is bettering society. And that's, that's what open markets mean. Hmm. Not a free market that if I'm an accredited investor and I'm allowed to invest, I can do a whole bunch of stuff and blah, blah, blah. I mean open. It is open to every single one. Everyone can be a bank. Everyone can be a hotel. Everyone can be their doctor. Everybody can be there and invest in health like you invest in wealth. Open for everyone, transparent, and people know what the rules are. Uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so I want to move on again because I know we're, we only have some time left. Let's talk about the competitive or cooperative landscape. So You've read a lot of white papers, a lot of healthcare, blockchain companies, startups, projects. What's your analysis or what do you contribute to be a predicting factor for a successful blockchain startup? Yeah, so, so I'll start. There's good news and there's bad news. Okay, so the good news is that there's a lot of activity. A lot of folks are doing a lot of things. And just for your audience, a lot of what we're asking, you know, they can find in my medium posts and they can actually look at tables and numbers and all that. So I really recommend to look at that. And I'll also uh, put we, those links, the link to your medium website in the show notes. So if anyone's listening you, and, you. you know, they can go down there and look um, on it. So, so there's a lot of activity, but then again, you know, a lot is relative because if let's say $20 billion were invested last year in cryptocurrency, but only 350 million was in healthcare. You know, that's only two and a half percent for a problem that represents almost 20% of our GDP. So, you know, my job, we were talking about how to blockchainize healthcare. I also think about how to healthify, if that's a word, the crypto space, you know, how can hmm. you kind of bring investors and say, wait a second, you know, gaming, gambling, trade, finance, all good. Pay attention to healthcare. Yeah. So, so, so that's kind of like it's still not on on, a, on enough radar. I think that it's under people underestimate and underinvest in the true impact of what blockchain-based solutions can do to healthcare and to society. So that's that's one statement. But going over these almost two hundred uh, uh, white papers, you kind of see that there are I don't know four or five 
uh, uh, domains. You know, there's self-sovereign electronic health records. We talked about that. There's blockchain used for supply chain. There are blockchain that's used, you know, for revenue cycle management. There's blockchain used for registries, for research, for example. And then there are, you know, blockchain used for credentialing physicians and so on. So, they're, they're, you know, a lot of people are kind of thinking, okay, these are the things that are special things like DAO for doctors or DAO for nurses and stuff like that. But in general, these are the, the, the solutions. And we found kind of by, by reading them, and again, this is many thanks to my uh, uh, 14 warriors, my students at, at Columbia University who sifted through all this and, you know, and made my life a little easier. Um, we found out things that, that none of them are surprising if I say it, but of course, it's always better to have a number of so one is, of course, if there is or is not domain expertise. So if you have a company that talks about self-sovereign electronic health records and no one on there has actually any uh, uh, experience in healthcare or in being with patients or in health IT, you know, that, that's a red flag. So, so lack of deep domain expertise, if it's just lawyers and marketers and some, you know, folks who did ICOs and all, I, I, you know, that's, that's, that's something to pay attention to. Uh, the other one is uh, most don't have a business model. There's no explanation of how, wh how are they going to, when I say business models, like, how are you going to make this sustainable? You know, where, where's the money going to come from? And it's, it's not, not how you're going like, to make money, but it's more about how you're going to develop this community or ecosystem yeah, how's it gonna, to not, not, become more yeah, valuable. Yeah. yeah. Point well taken. How, yeah. how are you going to fund this effort? Mm-hmm. And, and how's this ecosystem going to be built? So I'm not saying that you have to have a business, but there are, there have been good you know ICOs that went out without a business model, but definitely it's statistically more significant that when you don't have one, you're not going to succeed. Okay. The next one, of course, is disclosure. You know, when they don't disclose, when they don't disclose financial things, when they don't disclose legal things, when, you know, when you go to these websites where you just don't understand what you're looking at, you know, and they just ask for your money, that's not good. And then there are more technical things that we found out. So, for example, uh, there's this, uh, you know, in, in, in the token distribution. So, for example, if the team decides to keep more than 15% of the tokens to themselves, so that that's a bad sign, 15-1-5, not, you know, when they say 90% for us and there's no lockout when we leave sayonara. So, so... And, and the second one is also if they keep uh, uh, more or they keep less for them, you know, uh, than 50 percent at the at the token generating event. They keep it for future distribution. That shows that they're looking long. So there's all kinds of, I would say, token economic designs that lead you to think that these people are serious and they want to be there in longevity and not just, you know, money to do quick liquidation and get out of there. Mm -hmm. um, there's also some interesting stuff like, I don't know, there's what we call, you know, Twitter vitality rate, you know, it's like Twitter activity or social media activity before, during and after an ICO. But the bottom line is, if someone says to you, I'm going to boil the ocean and it's going to be great and give me tons of money and uh, it's going to be awesome and you see it's for them and then they leave, it's, it's not good. So. So I think that the, those are kind of the, the five or six predictors that we found. Hmm, interesting. What do you think will be the first use case or what's the most obvious use case in blockchain? You mentioned, you know, a few already of those five different categories, but what do you think is going to be adopted 
first? Well, there are already some that are starting to be adopted, um, and it's different in different markets. Uh, in the U.S., there's some serious uh, efforts that are already succeeding in terms of supply chain and in terms of um, uh, credentialing. Mm-hmm. You know, look to Change Health, you know, Emily Vaughn, what she's doing, John Bass and Hash Health, what he's doing. Yeah. So those are things that actually are happening as we speak. Mass adoption, you know, the Federation of Medical State Boards are taking, you know, we're not there yet, but there are things that enterprises uh, are, are adopting and things are starting to, to, to happen. So in the U.S., I would say uh, those are the things that, that are easier to swallow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, revenue cycle management, that's that's something touchy but then again these are things that are going out in other countries here where you would find that uh self-sovereign electronic health records for example estonia has one you know for all all, all their citizens hmm. eastern europe india it was funny one of my uh uh, uh colleagues you know um amchar they, they they have this self-sovereign electronic health record came back to me a year ago and i said don't don't do this in the U.S. You know they're just going to kill you. And says, what should I do? I said, you know, why don't you go buy a hospital somewhere and use it there? And so indeed, they bought a hospital in India and in Mumbai, and now it's going on. So you know things of that sort. Erio is doing very interesting things in refugee camps. That's connected to the ID twenty twenty. So we are not talking just about vaporware. This is not 2016, 2017. And again, I apologize, whoever I didn't mention. I love you all, and we're all good. Yeah, but and but some the of the point- ones that you did mention, actually, I've recorded with like Erio, for example, as well as uh, Emily Vaughn from Change Healthcare. So I encourage my listeners to check them out. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on AI, and really, from in my opinion, I think that in the future we'll need a blockchain or a distributed system to trust AI. Otherwise, we I wouldn't trust it in general. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about AI and the whole concept of black box, you know, that when you just have a bunch of engineers and people that are sitting on their own and they're just defining what they're doing and and, and they're not sharing and open sourcing, you know, that's a problem. And, and, and we talked about, you know, a little bit about bias and deep fakes and, and you know, when, when you get silly answers to, 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 to questions that you ask. Um, so, so I do think that um, blockchain, when it's combined to AI, actually can transform it into trusted AI. Mm-hmm. The minute you open it up, either to make it more robust from a research perspective, and again, I am not a, a specialist in artificial intelligence. You know, I might be a specialist in natural stupidity, but <laughs> not in artificial intelligence. So far so, from it. But go ahead. But, but 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 what I'm saying is that that. Um, you know, clearly, when you open up, you bring diversity to the table, you bring other opinions, you bring other brain power, that makes machines more robust. Um, I, I think a, a thought that came, you know, uh, to me and was discussed in one of the, the, the last conferences that I was about blockchain and AI is not only can blockchain when paired with AI do certain things like structure data a little bit there or create an open marketplace and blah, 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 but also kind of like, let's do a thought experiment saying, you know, imagine, imagine there's a protocol that runs all on its own. Okay. Okay. Just, auto, just runs on its own. And imagine that that protocol uh, gets smarter and smarter by the day. 
to the point like, oh my God, it is so it is so smart. You can't you can't beat it anymore. Right. And as it's working on its own and it's getting smarter, collecting smarter, more information, data, more information, and whatever whatever it's supposed to do, it's executing it at a level that is way superior to what you can do mm-hmm. in your bit in your, with your brain, and it's asking for more and more energy. It's taking more and more energy, more and more I don't know power, more electricity, more hydropower, more wind power. That's that's AI, right? That's that. Mm-hmm. So so. Actually, it also sounds to me a lot like Bitcoin. It sounds to me a lot like, like, you know, the hash power that started that maybe were four PCs and now are four times the whole hashing power of Google. Yeah. That is taking more and more electricity than the whole state of Ireland. You know, it's 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 something that's on its own. It's getting smarter and smarter and it's draining it. it and we're feeding maybe it. Maybe blockchain yeah. is, is a form of AI. Maybe blockchain is the trusted AI that Satoshi Nakamoto designed to fight the problem of the centralized federal federal centralized bank. Yeah, so there was and a that's theory. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, there was a theory that Satoshi was actually, you know, some rogue AI that just wrote whatever he thought people would want at the exact right time during the financial crisis, and this was all yep. planned out by some. Yep. Rogue she AI. did a great job. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, what would you ask a healthcare or financial regulators to do about this new token economy? I feel like they're still struggling to learn about it. And what would you ask them to look at or learn about first? Like, how do you get them? Well, first involved? of all, I would say them come to my workshops, you know, okay. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I would give Let's them start. a discount price. <laughs> there you go. Is there going to be a health unchained discount code? <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, um, I think that, uh, um, Unfortunately, people are moved into action only if they have a sense of urgency. You know, as much as we would like to imagine people that have an uh, uh, internal locus of control that seek knowledge because they're driven by curiosity and uh, they just always are motivated by their internal will to better their environment, that, 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 that's a little bit naive hmm. and that most people, you know, either are incurious or are procrastinating or are moved by some external locus of control by saying, you know, I'll have to do this because either it'll make me lose bad, you know, look bad or lose money or, or, or put me in an untenable position. So it's difficult for me to uh, kind of um, motivate legislators to do something that, does, that they don't have a sense of urgency. Uh, however, I think that we're in a good position regarding healthcare because right now everybody understands and everybody feels that healthcare is not doing a good job. Right. Yeah, that's nobody's I think universally going around there saying, upon. you know, health, healthcare works for me. At least in, definitely in the United States, I would say. And, and that's true for all, the, all over the world. You know, there are different concerns. Different in the issues, right? countries, different concerns, you know, in developing countries. But nobody's walking around saying, you know, that we're healthier than generations before or that it's more affordable or whatnot. We have a long way to but go But I think there. that what happens is we jump way too fast into the how without reflecting on the why. So we all kind of want to, oh, you know, let's do single payer. Let's do let's do a free market and social. And it just diverts immediately the conversation 
to something that is, uh, um, I would say, not thought through. And so instead, I would always ask legislators to step back and think in very simplistic terms of what they would want. What would you want? Would you want someone to own your data? If the answer is no, then 49 states, all, all the legislators that are outside the state of New Hampshire right. tomorrow have to change their data law, health data law. Because except New Hampshire, all other states, your data by law belongs to your doctor. Provided so here, for... that's the first thing to do on the legislative agenda. Yeah, I find that amazing that's still the case. And and so that's what even I would ask the person, you know, the people in the SEC who, you know, are starting to say, well, you know, we're going to be the ICO cops because we want to protect, you know, accredited investors because, 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 because. Oh, and by the way. The people that are doing shenanigans in the crypto world are the same people that are doing shenanigans in the non-crypto world. So, so instead of, again, running by the question of, okay, so what legislation would you put is in the workshop? What's wrong and how should it be fixed? So I don't know. It's like a doctor. I, I listen to people and they have to tell me what's wrong with them. And, and, and there's kind of this asymmetry, and I'm going a second to that. Imagine that meeting that I have with a patient who has chronic pain. And I would say to these patients, listen, this is a very asymmetrical conversation because I know everything about pain because I'm a pain specialist. You know nothing about it. So I have leverage over you. But I'm also at a huge disadvantage because you know everything about your pain. Right. And I know nothing of. So it's the same thing when we apply this into the legislative process. Legislators have to start to behave like doctors and try to do diagnoses. It's not to look at people and say, well, looking at you, I think that you're depressed. And so I'm going to give you a pill without talking to me. No, you're looking at me and I look stern because I grew up in the military and I have a stern look. And so when I start to send, you know, uh, 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 to all my friends, uh, poop emojis. My daughter looks at me and says, Dad, why are you sending poop emojis? And I'm saying, wait a second. I thought those were Hershey kisses. <laughs> you know, so context is everything. Can't unsee that anymore. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. so, so, the, so the point is that, you know, an AI machine would look at that and say, oh, Alex is a psychopath because he sends, you know, 50 times a day uh, uh, poop kisses. emojis. <laughs> As in, but never, no one ever came to me and said, do you know what you're doing? I'm saying, yeah, I'm selling, you know, Hershey kisses. Right. So we They're have making assumptions. Yes, without... exactly. And so when I write about the good, the bad, and the ugly in crypto health, what do I write about? What's the good? The good is we all want to do better. We want to help. Even legislators. There are very few legislators that legislate out of spite. Some of them do. You know, mm -hmm. I everybody likes the bald eagle. I will pass something that just, you know, we got to kill all the bald eagles. But most don't. You know, most... They want to do good. They want to do good with the capital G. But that's the good part. The, the, the ugly is, uh, sorry, the bad is uh, you want to do too much. You want to boil the ocean. It just it makes it too complicated. So you get these projects that are undoable. You get these legislative, you know, 5,000 pages. You want to do everything and then suffice that one stick something, you know, that regard, you know, uh, something that pertains to cheddar cheese or some, I don't know what, and then it kind of ruins the whole legislative effort. And the ugly is what you said, is baked assumptions. 
And what is the most nefarious baked assumption? Is if you were in the military, you would know this. The most nefarious baked assumption is that your superiors are idiots, hmm. okay, and that your inferiors are lazy. Hmm. And neither are true. If you're a sergeant, your officer, you know, he's a smart cookie. He worked really hard to get there. Right. Give them the respect and the benefit of the doubt. And your private, he's not lazy. He was like you. He will be you. So cultivate, build, nourish. And so I think that these baked assumptions that come into this workshop, where everybody explains to everybody else what they need to do, instead of assuming responsibility, I think that that's that. So I, I think that if, if, if legislators would just pay a little bit more attention to the diagnosis and really uh, beyond just, you know, when I say, yeah, you got to learn stuff, you got to know stuff, but that's not what's holding back. It's, and this is an important point. We live in the first time in human history where ignorance is not the reason why we're doing things wrong. Okay, when Washington was dying from the runs, okay, all that he had was some bad yogurt, okay? But when he was dying from it, then his doctors leached him. They bled him. And then the next morning, he was worse, so they bled him again. And then in the evening, you know, when he was still worse, they bled him a third time, and then they really succeeded in killing him. They didn't Today, know. Today, we don't, we don't live in a time where ignorance is the reason why we're doing wrong things. Today, we live in a time where ineptitude, despite the fact that I know this, 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 and that, I choose to not do what I need to do. And so that's the problem of legislators, that they're so obsessed of doing things right that they forget to do the right thing. And it's easy to do the right thing. It's not complicated. Well said. Thank you for that. I'm kind of wrapping up here. What would uh, what would you say, if it's not too personal, what would you say or considered to be your biggest mistake in the last, in your career <laughs> in my career or in your um, life um, I, I mean however you want to answer it oh man there, there's so many <laughs> but i i think the biggest the biggest uh mistake uh beyond not saying enough to my parents how much i love them and what you know they were so wonderful to me uh and kind of take them too much for granted and so when they weren't around again you know i kind of felt wow i should have been you know, more there. Um, I would say from a professional perspective, I think leaving the military, I think that my desire to help millions at a time instead of one at a time, because that's what happened to me. You know, I was sitting in front of patients day after day after day. And then I would say, I would say 3,500 patients a year and still everybody's dying from the opioids, you know, from opioid crisis. So I said, I can work 24-7 all my life and I won't make a dent. And that's why I started to be drawn to systems and system thinking and system redesign. I think that if I would have stayed in the military, be it the Israeli military or the U.S. military, and I am a subject matter for, for, for the DOD and the VA, I think I would have been way more impactful hmm. than what I am today. So it's not that... Don't uh, undersell yourself. I think you're very impactful, and I'm sure you've affected, uh, you know, thousands, millions of people already with your work and with what you were doing now with blockchain. I think so. Don't don't undersell well, yourself here. That that's kind of you to say, but man, if you're a four star general and you say, 
that's how I want it, you know. Uh, I I think that, uh, and, and people, you know, they, they think of um, the military as the archetype of centralized organizations, and that's a mischaracterization. Actually, the military is the archetype of the most decentralized organization, because even though it has hierarchy, these are just interconnections between different nodes at different levels, because hmm. everybody knows that we plan ourselves to death. There is a contingency, so many contingencies planned that we have to move from the alphanumeric alphabet to the Greek alphabet. Hmm. And when the first bullet is shot, nothing looks like what we planned. So, so it's really about a holocratic approach of what my sergeant said, you know, is GSD, get stuff done. He didn't use the S, wasn't for stuff. It was a different word, but, you know, <laughs> get stuff done. And right. when I would say, sir, I have a question, you'd say, Alex, did you GSD for me today? I'd say, no, sir. So, so go first GSD. When you're done GSD, come back to me. <laughs> and I think that if I would have been able to continue that fearless, but also selfless, that's, that, that's important. Because there are a lot of fearless guys here in New York that gamble with other people's money. <laughs> that's not the problem. There's not a lack of testosterone going around here. But it's the selflessness. And it's the humility that really characterized the, the, the military. And so, you know, for me, world is chaos. Fortune is luck. It's character that matters. Hmm. And, and I, I, I just feel that, again, going back, thinking now that you asked me about the Army, my sergeant used to say to me, one day we'll laugh about this. It just won't be today. So, so that's, I think, my greatest regret. Thank you for answering that. Um, is there anything you want to like leave the audience with, or maybe we can kind of go over like the market outlook from your perspective. And then maybe, um, if there's anything else I didn't ask you, you want to tell the audience, feel free. Well, first of all, I think you did an excellent job of really, you know, drilling a lot of information. So I hope, I hope the audience doesn't feel that they're, you know, uh, uh drinking from a water hose and I would uh, recommend them to hear it in tranches and hear it again and again. And then when they haven't heard it one more time, just try one more time. Um, but I do think that it is propos to say, you know, some prediction, you know, because a doctor not only does a diagnosis and a treatment plan, but also a prognosis. And I think that the prognosis is a very good one. Um, because I think that people understand that what we're doing now is not sustainable. It's not sustainable how we treat each other. It's not sustainable how we treat our assets. It's not sustainable how we treat our planet. It's not, it's not sustainable how we consume things. You know, it's just things have to have to change. And I think that the digital era is really these last years the, the, have brought in so many tools that can help us move from a human centric approach to a human driven approach. Hmm. And, and that's exciting. The way that will translate in the market is that little uh, initiatives and little startups that are prescient are going to start to pop out, pop up, and many of them will die, like in also the non-blockchain space, you know, 95, 98%. Uh, those who will survive mostly by serendipity and not by quality uh, will start to coalesce, and we'll have these decentralized networks and consortia and coalitions. And we actually have that already. You know, we you are do. working inside, you know, these networks of what I'm doing with you. You know, it's, yeah. it's, we're all bouncing off this borderless, global, timeless. You know, today I had a conversation with 
Chennai and Warsaw and Geneva and Tel Aviv and New York all in one day. Wow. So this is just amazing. It's just really, how can you not be excited besides the, 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 the internet dropping a few times? How can you not be excited by this seamless ability to, to communicate without friction and without cost? So, so these, these things will coalesce. And at some point, some point, there will be a leadership that is courageous enough. I don't know if it'll be baby boomers. I'm very disappointed in my, you know, my colleagues. I think we did a very poor job and we're not humble enough to admit that ineptitude. Hmm. But hopefully younger generation, they will, you know, help us without killing us, you know, actually move into a more inclusive, diverse, just environment that has to be resilient because this is what it's all about. When I talk to patients who had pain, I never talk to them about pain. I talk to them about resilience. I say to them, Pain is mandatory. It's the suffering that's optional. Hmm. And this is kind of where I see this. All the stuff that we're upset with, and it's mandatory, becomes part of the complexity of life. The question is, what are we doing with it? And if we stop for a second and celebrate our successes, what you're doing, which is affirmative journalism, uh, you know, it's not sensationalism. It is really spreading the good word I think that uh, you know the 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 future of of blockchain being a tool that will allow this society to be a more just and 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 inclusive and resilient society is going to be prominent. Alex, I share your optimism, and I want to thank you so much again for being on the show as a guest and I think we had a great discussion and I really hope that our audience thinks so as well. Uh, so how can they reach you if they want to get in contact with you? I'm going to leave uh, a link to your median website so they can look at all your articles. Well, listen, uh, LinkedIn is something that I look in. So please, you know, plug my name. Thank, thank you that there's no a lot of Kahanas. So just spell it with a C, C-A-H-A-N-A, Alex Kahana, LinkedIn. Uh, my email, alex at cryptooracle.io. Cryptooracle goes with two O's.io. I am reachable. They can reach through you, Ray. Mm -hmm. It has been real pleasure. Uh, your questions are thoughtful, and I have a feeling that we will meet again. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.